I remember, I still remember this moment in my life. I was at a worship service, and I've been to many events very similar to this, but there was a special guest speaker at this particular event, and he began to preach to an auditorium full of people, and he told his story, told his testimony of how he came to know Christ. And his story was one, he had been a drug dealer, he had been an alcoholic, he had lived a hard life, he had spent time in and out of prison, And then somebody invited him to church. And so he went to church. The preacher got up and began to speak about Jesus. And the man felt like God was speaking to him. And then when the preacher asked if anybody in the room wanted to follow Jesus, this man raised his hand, walked down the aisle. He became a Christian, began following Jesus. And the way he told the story, he then went home to his house, opened up the liquor cabinet and took out all the alcohol and poured it down the drain, took all the drugs and flushed them down the toilet. He stopped sleeping around. He stopped having a temper. He was no longer tempted to do the things he once did or hang around with the people that he once did. And he stood up in front of this room full of people. And he said, I don't struggle with that stuff anymore. I'm a new creation in Christ. And everybody, it was a beautiful story. Everybody was amening. Everybody was crying. People were moved. It was this powerful worship story. But in all honesty, I'm sitting there listening to that, and in my own heart, I was, just wasn't that inspired. <laughs> I was actually kind of depressed when I heard that. Because I could not relate to that story at all. And I've heard many people tell stories like that. God saved me, and I no longer struggled with all those things I once struggled with. And I don't doubt the man's sincerity. I certainly don't doubt his sincerity. I don't doubt the truthfulness of his story. But my story of following Jesus has been a lot less about instantaneous change and a lot more to do with a slow struggle with a lot of ups and downs. Some of the things that I wrestled with before knowing Jesus took me a long time to overcome. And many of those things I still struggle with. And as I get older and the longer I follow Jesus, it seems that I I still seem to keep developing new struggles. Transformation in my life has usually come much slower than I prefer. And spiritual growth for me has never been fast or easy. It has always taken time. And I imagine that for most of you, that's probably true as well. Am I right? Spiritual change just seems to come so slow. And when we hear stories of people who just, it was instantaneous, it... It's inspiring in some ways, but in other ways, it's almost discouraging because you go, that's what I want, but I'm not experiencing that. And most of you in this room, I I guess that you're probably similar to me, that you love Jesus. You want to be more like him. You want to please him. You want to grow, but it seems so hard and it takes so long. And you may feel like the apostle Paul, when he said in Romans seven, where he said, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I don't do. But what I hate to do, I do. You might feel like that sometimes. You're like, there are all these things that I wish I didn't do, but man, I just keep doing them. And there's all these things that I wish I did that I just don't do. And the Apostle Paul is just like you and me. He says that's his struggle as well. And in this room, I know that there are people at every stage in their spiritual journey. Some of you have been following Jesus for a long, long time. Others of you, Christianity is a very, very new thing. But there is one thing that I hope is true for all of us, and that is that I hope that all of us want to be more like Jesus than we currently are. We all want to grow more in our faith. If you were to ask us, what do you want? What do you want your faith to look like one year from now? None of us would hopefully say we want it to be exactly the same. 
we would all say, I want to grow in my faith. And in Philippians 3, the Apostle Paul says he wants the exact same thing. He says in verse 12, he says, I haven't obtained this. And he, when he says this, he's referring to verse 10 that we talked about last week, where he says, becoming like Christ in his life and resurrection. He says, not that I've already become like Christ or that I'm already perfect. Paul says, I want to be like Jesus, but I'm not yet. I'm not perfect. I'm still growing. And that's encouraging for me to hear because Paul is the great missionary. He wrote half of the New Testament and he can, he still says, I've got a long way to go. And if he can say that, so can the rest of us. We've got a long way to go. Not that we've already attained it, not that we're perfect, but I'm striving toward the goal. And so this morning, I want us to consider how do we strive toward that goal of spiritual growth? How do we uh, pursue Christ in a way that is hopeful about what we're becoming, but also understands that there will be struggles and ups and downs along the way? How do we grow and move forward in the Christian life? And how do we grow into becoming the person who God is calling us to be? And the first thing has to do with our motivation. Paul says we pursue Jesus because Jesus has first pursued us. Elsewhere, he says, we love him because he first loved us. Paul says, not that I've already obtained this or that I am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Paul says, I'm not the man that I want to be, but I am pressing on. I am determined. I am striving to be more like Jesus. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And Paul is saying, I am pressing on to take hold of Christ because Christ has first taken hold of me. And I don't want you to miss this because motivation is, is so important in the way that we pursue our spiritual growth. Paul says he, he is motivated to pursue Christ because Christ has pers first pursued him. Paul doesn't say he's motivated to pursue Christ so that Christ will accept him. He doesn't say, I'm motivated to pursue Christ so that Christ will be impressed with me. Paul doesn't say, I'm motivated to pursue Christ so that Christ will bless me. Paul doesn't say, I'm motivated to pursue Christ because I feel guilty and I want to be better. He says, I take hold of Jesus because Jesus has taken hold of me. I pursue Jesus because Christ has first pursued me. And Paul is likely referencing his conversion. And if you've been around the Bible for any length of time, you may know that Paul's conversion story is one of the most shocking, one of the most incredible conversion stories in all of the Bible. Paul had been a religious leader at the time of Jesus. And after Jesus' death, when the church began growing throughout Jerusalem, it was Paul who led the charge to try to stamp out this new Jesus movement. Paul was the one that was, that was murdering Christians, that was... Uh, arresting religious leaders. He is the one, he persecuted Christians. He discouraged them from openly professing their faith. He even presided over the stoning of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. Paul was a bad dude. And Paul was, he was sincere in his hatred for Christians. He was sincere in his hatred of Jesus and his hatred of the church. He was without a doubt at that time, the least likely convert in the world. So much so that you don't really see it in the scriptures, um, but there was a, a TV miniseries a while back called AD, and it followed, <clears throat> it followed sort of the growth of Christianity after Jesus' resurrection. And one of the things that the stories it told, and it was kind of reading between the lines of scripture, but it kind of told this story of Paul being converted, but then the other disciples were just so hesitant 
to welcome him in because they, they were like, is he trying to be like a double O agent now? Like what's going on? This is the guy that hated us. And now he's one of us. He was the least likely convert in the world. And it's likely that it took even the disciples some time to be convinced that Paul was one of them. But in Acts chapter nine, it says that while the apostle Paul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he was blinded by a bright light. He was knocked to the ground and he heard the audible voice of God calling him to a life of faith. Jesus pursued Paul. Paul was not seeking after Jesus, but Jesus sought after him. Paul was going the opposite direction of a life of faith. In fact, he was trying to stamp out those who lived lives of faith. But yet Jesus in his grace and in his mercy said, I'm not going to let you go that direction. And he grabbed Paul and put him on the path to life. And that changed Paul. Paul didn't do anything to earn Jesus's favor or acceptance. It was freely given to him. That changed him. And Paul spent the rest of his life so grateful and so shocked that the, by the love that Jesus had shown him that his whole life was a response to that love. I press on to make it my own, Paul says, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And listen, if we want to experience true spiritual change in our lives, it will not come by guilting ourselves into it. You know, often we guilt ourselves. I'm going to get better this year. Our New Year's resolutions. I'm going to read my Bible more because, man, I was so bad at it last year. I'm going to pray more. And, man, I've really been messing up lately. Ah, I'm going to do better. I'm going to do better, Jesus. I'm going to do better. But Paul says that true spiritual change doesn't come from guilting ourselves from within. It comes from taking hold of what God has done for us so that our lives are a response of gratitude. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, he says, And we all who with unveiled faces, listen, contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Paul says that as we contemplate and meditate on what Jesus has done for us, his perfect life, his death on the cross, his resurrection, as we contemplate and meditate and behold that, we will be transformed into his image. See, what Paul says is that a mature Christian never moves beyond the gospel. A mature Christian goes deeper into the gospel. You know, oftentimes we think that the gospel, Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, him saying, follow me, us believing in him and being, our sins being covered and us giving a new name and a new home and a new inheritance in Christ. A lot of times we often think, okay, that's the first step into a life of faith. And now I need to really mature and get to, the, that's the elementary stuff. I need to mature to the impressive stuff. I need to learn theology and I need to read a bunch of dead white guys named John so that I can get smart and know John Calvin, John Wesley. Uh, John, I mean, but we think that's elementary stuff. That gospel, getting saved, that's elementary stuff. I need to move beyond that. But Paul says, no, you never move beyond the gospel. You go deeper into it. That is how you grow into a life of faith. That is where genuine spiritual growth comes out. It is motivated out of a response first to what Jesus has done for us. But then he says, if you want to grow spiritually, you must look ahead and not behind you. You must look ahead to what awaits you, not to what is behind you. He says, brother, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies, lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call 
in God in Christ Jesus. My favorite, I talked last week that I'm a, I used to be a distance runner. Keyword used to be. Um, I just eat a lot of bagels now is really what I do. <laughs> but I still watch track and field, okay? I still enjoy watching distance running. Because of that, my favorite athlete of all time is a marathoner. More than LeBron James, more than John Smoltz. Any, my favorite athlete of all time is a guy by the name of Meb Kaflesky. Meb Kaflesky, in my opinion, is the greatest male marathoner in American history. Eritrean-born, refugee as a child, came to the United States, went to college at UCLA, earned his citizenship, and has represented the United States better than anybody in athletics over the last decade, two decades. And his greatest victory, the one that he's perhaps most well-known for, is when he won the 2014 Boston Marathon. And he won it the year after the Boston Marathon bombings. And he won it when he was 38 years old. Amazing display of athleticism. But in that race, he did something that nobody ever does in a marathon. And you guys probably aren't familiar with marathon strategy, but one of the things that you do not do in a race like that, that's that long with people that are that talented, is you never take the lead early in the race and jump to the front of the race. But what Meb Kaflesky did is he jumped to the lead at mile 13, halfway, 13 miles to go, and he took off and he gapped the entire field and got a huge lead on everybody and just pressed on toward the finish line. And the whole way the announcers were like, everybody's going to catch him. You can't lead the race that long because they're all running together and they're motivated. You can't do it. But he took off with half of the race left to go. But he didn't pay attention to the race that was going on behind him. He looked forward to the finish line and he pressed onward until he won the race. Became the first American man to win the Boston Marathon since in like 35 years. And the Apostle Paul, the reason I tell that story is because the Apostle Paul uses imagery that sounds a lot like a marathoner pressing toward the finish line. You know, Paul uses a lot of running metaphors throughout his epistles, which makes me think he was probably a runner himself, or at least he was a fan of athletics. But Paul says, forgetting what lies behind, straining to what lies ahead, I press toward the goal. And I, I wonder when Paul says this, what is he referring to that's behind him? When Paul says, you know what, I'm not going to pay attention to that which is behind me. I'm just going to focus on what lies ahead. I wonder what he's talking about, about what's behind him. What is it that he, he is referring to that he says, I've, I can't look at, I need to forget about what is behind me if I want to mature in my faith. See, my old track coach used to tell me that every time I'd turn around and look behind me in a race to see where everybody is, he said, you actually lose a few steps or you may take your eyes off the course and you can easily trip. What is it in Paul's past that would have tripped him up if he looked at it too long? What is it in our past that can trip us up if we pay attention to it? And I think there are two things that would have been true for Paul, and I think they're true for you and me as well. And that by looking forward, that, that if we look back toward these things can actually be a hindrance to our spiritual growth. First thing is this, I think it's past failures. I think often Paul had plenty, you think Paul had plenty of reasons to doubt how God could ever use him. You know, Paul, he was a murderer. He was an angry man who hated Christians. We don't see it in the New Testament, but it's likely because he was a Pharisee, it's likely that he was one of the people within the plots to actually have Jesus killed. Paul had a lot in his past to be ashamed of. And if he spent too much time looking back on it, he might feel like a failure. He might feel inadequate. He might feel insecure. And that would distract him from fulfilling the call that God had on his life. 
A few weeks ago, I spent some time with some of my old high school friends that live here in the city. We were sitting on my friend's rooftop overlooking Manhattan, and we were laughing, joking about all the things we used to do. And I remember taking the train home that night, and I just felt ashamed because I had been reminded of so many things in my past. And I was like, why was I laughing at that? Why was I making, why was I joining in the jokes of all that? And it just reminded me of the person that I once was. And I was so ashamed on the train that night, just thinking, "Mm." and I woke up the next morning and I had to preach a sermon to you guys. And the whole sermon, I just remember feeling like a hypocrite, you know, like so unworthy, so insecure. Who am I to speak about God? Who am I to be a pastor? Who am I to stand up, open the scriptures and try to tell you what they mean when you've probably lived much holier lives than I have? And I was looking back and I wasn't looking ahead. And I know that in a room this size, a lot of you have some things in your past that you're likely very ashamed of. And for some of you, it is holding back your spiritual growth. You may be happy that God has forgiven you, but in your heart, you aren't really convinced that he can use you for his glory. You're not really convinced that he can use somebody with your past. And so you kind of tread slowly and you kind of wait for the bottom to drop out and you kind of stay at a distance because you think I'll let those the perfect Christians do their thing. But I'll just kind of stand back because I'm not really worthy. And that insecurity because of your past actually keeps you from fulfilling the life of faith that God has called you to now. And Paul says, stop looking behind, look ahead. Because those thoughts are not of God. They are from the enemy. In fact, the Bible says that Satan, one of his names is the accuser. And he will accuse you of things that God has already forgotten. He will accuse you of things that God has forgiven. He will accuse you of things that were nailed to the cross and put in the tomb with Jesus. Those things no longer define you. God no longer sees those things. So you must not look back at those things either. Paul says in Romans, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And some of you need to stop condemning yourselves over past mistakes and look forward to the life that God has for you because you would be shocked to know that Paul, that this, in the scriptures, it is rarely perfect people that God uses to accomplish his ends. In fact, it's always messed up people that God uses to accomplish the things that he wants to accomplish. Paul was a murderer. David was an adulterer. Peter denied Jesus. Peter was kind of racist at times. I mean, story after story after story of the Bible tells the story of God's redemption that God uses imperfect people to enact his perfect plan. So no matter what you've done or what you've experienced in your life, please look forward and know that God has a calling and a plan and a life ahead for you that, ha- that is not determined by your past, but is only determined by the future that he's set for you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Another thing that we can often look back on that, call- that can trip us up is our past successes. See, while Paul had a shady past, he was also a very successful person. He was a Pharisee, which meant he knew the scriptures very well. It meant he had spent hours of his life in prayer. He was respected. And then after becoming a Christian, he founded countless number of churches. He had preached incredible sermons. We talked about this last week. He had an impressive spiritual resume. 
But Paul says, I don't look back at any of that because that's a distraction. Listen, some of the meanest, most hypocritical people I've ever met are people who once were walking closely with Jesus. Do you understand what I mean? Some of the meanest, most hypocritical people are people who once had a vibrant faith. But for whatever reason, they began to rely on past progress and past experiences with God that they had in the past that they stopped moving forward. And what ended up happening is they relied on their past. They relied on what they had done, what they had been a part of, how long they had been at the church, how long they had served, how long they had been doing this. I've been doing this forever, so therefore I deserve this. And what ended up happening is they looked back so much that they never started moving forward and the fruit of the Spirit in their lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, entropy. And if you ever try to point it out to somebody like that, if you ever try to point out that they have grown callous, they will, what they'll do is they'll remind you of all the great things they've done in the past. You see, they're focusing on all their past religious successes are actually the thing that's keeping them from moving forward in their faith. Howard John Wesley, he says, most of the hypocrisy, judgment, and self-righteousness in the church today comes from those who are so content with past progress that they feel that they can judge others who have not attained the level that they have, failing to realize that they haven't crossed the finish line yet either. Praise God for your past spiritual success. Praise God for your past, but don't take your eye off the goal. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. When I think of Meb Kaflesky's Boston Marathon victory, what makes it so special is that it culminated a really long and eventful career. But on that day, at 38 years old, Meb had to put all of the stuff that had happened in his career behind him if he wanted to win that race, the good and the bad. You know, he could have, while he was running that race, he could have been thinking about how his sponsor, Nike, had dropped him just a few months before that race because he was too old. And he could have thought about the fact that his new sponsor is Skechers, and he's like, how can you run a marathon in a pair of Skechers? That was my first thought. That's true. But he could have been bitter that his sponsor dropped him, that he wasn't getting paid what he used to get paid. You know, he could have focused on the fact that he lost the Boston Marathon many times before. He could have said, you know what? I've run this race so many times and usually at this point in the race, it all falls apart. This is where I get past. Oh, you know what? They're probably gonna catch me at some point. He could have focused on all the past times he had lost the race. He could have doubted his tactics. Oh man, maybe I took the lead too soon. He could have doubted his abilities. You know, I'm too old. I'm not as fast as these guys anymore. Maybe, maybe I'm too old. Maybe I'm past my prime. If he would have thought about that, he wouldn't have had the strength to look forward to what was ahead of him. But he also could have focused on his past successes. He could have gotten cocky and thought, I got this in the bag. And he could have coasted and gotten past. He could have thought about the fact that he was a silver medalist at the Athens Olympics in 2004. He could have thought about the fact that he won the New York City Marathon in 2009. He could have thought about the fact that he had won the U.S. championships infinite times in a row. He could have thought about how he was, I'm the American record holder in the 10K. But none of that would have done him any good on that day. It didn't matter his past successes or his past failures on that day. All that mattered on that day was that he got to the finish line before everybody else. All that mattered on that day was that his eyes were focused on the finish line and the prize that awaited him there. And that is what gave him the strength to put each foot in front of the other because his eye was on the prize. 
And the Apostle Paul says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says, he says elsewhere, I set my mind on things above. I've told this story before, but I love it so much and you've probably forgotten it anyway, so I'll tell it again. (laughs) In C.S. Lewis's uh, Chronicles of Narnia, my favorite character, even more than Aslan, is this my favorite little character is this little mouse named Reepicheet. He's tiny, in fact, C.S. Lewis actually said Reepicheet was an autobiographical character. He was, that was sort of his, his self written into that little mouse. But Reepicheet's this tiny little mouse. And you know Narnia, there's these big dragons and monsters and unicorns and everything else. And I mean, there's all these big creatures and he's this little mouse. But Reepicheet, in all of the books, and he's only in three of them, But in all of the books, he's the most fierce, most honorable, most courageous warrior in the whole story. He never backed down from a fight, even if it was with a big dragon or a big whatever. But he was also very kind and very compassionate and very gracious and very patient. But if you remember anything about Reepicheep, especially from the voyage of the Dawn Treader, you'll know this, that there is one thing that he always and pretty much only talked about. Reepicheep, all he talked about was getting to Aslan's country, which was kind of an allegory for heaven, getting to be with Aslan. He would talk about it all the time. Oh, when I get to Aslan's country, I'm going to be with Aslan and I'm going to be, I'm no longer going to be this tiny little thing. I'm going to be this big, fierce warrior. I'm going to be with Aslan and Aslan's going to be with me and I'll be where everything is right and everything is good. And while they were traveling toward Aslan's country by sea, every step of the way, he talked about getting there. And his mind was so focused on what awaited him in Aslan's country that he was able to be courageous and kind in the present. Because he knew that in Aslan's country, he was, nothing could hurt him. He knew that in Aslan's country, there would be nothing to be afraid of. There was nothing to fear. There would be no sadness. There would be no mourning. There would be no more tears. And he knew that that was what awaited him. And so he was able to live courageously and hopefully in the present. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians 3, If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. If you are a follower of Jesus, you can look forward to the day when Jesus welcomes you into a kingdom that is not made with human hands, a kingdom where your past does not define you, but only makes you appreciate God's grace even more. You will be whole, you will be joyful, and you will be with Christ. And Paul says that if we set our minds on the heavenly city today, we can live as good and courageous citizens of the earthly city today. C.S. Lewis said elsewhere, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were precisely those who thought the most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Paul says, set your mind on the life that awaits you and you'll be more effective in the one here and now. Jesus himself told us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. What? On earth as it is in heaven. Fix our eyes on what awaits us in heaven and we will be able to seek his kingdom today here on earth.
Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. The final thing that we need to understand if we want to experience genuine spiritual growth is that spiritual growth happens by holding true to that which we have already attained. Paul says, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. See, I think some of us, when we think of spiritual growth, we think to ourselves, man, if I keep it up, if I pray, if I, if I really start praying, if I really start reading my Bible and I really kind of put behind me all these sins and all these things, God is really going to love the future version of me. You know, <laughs> don't we think that sometimes? Man, if I could get this bad habit behind me, if I could really discipline myself to pray every day, if I could start studying the Bible, if I could really get in a growth group and actually keep going and not flake out every week. And I'm so busy now, but one day when I get to those things, God is really going to love me. We often think that, don't we? Man, God's really going to love the version of myself that I hope materializes in the next 10 years. But we fail to forget that God's love and his acceptance of us is not contingent on our religious performance. His love and his acceptance upon us is freely given. And one story that has always struck me as so beautiful. In fact, the first sermon I ever preached as a pastor of this church was on this passage. But in the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark, in our Bible, Matthew, in the Bible you probably have in your hands, Matthew is the first gospel. But in reality, Mark was the earliest gospel that was written. So people at the, first, at the time uh, that the gospels were being written, the gospel of Mark would have been the first one that somebody would have read. Imagine for a moment that nobody's ever heard anything about Jesus. And all they do is they pick up the Bible, they pick up the New Testament, and they read the gospel of Mark. And the gospel of Mark in the first chapter doesn't say anything about Jesus' birth. Matthew, one, uh, Matthew and John and Luke talk about Jesus' birth. Or Matthew and Luke talk about Jesus' birth. John talks about Jesus' deity. Mark doesn't talk about any of that at the beginning. Mark goes straight. The first thing it tells you, the first time we see Jesus in the Gospel of Mark is his baptism. And we don't know anything about Jesus, but Jesus goes down into the water with John the Baptist. John the Baptist baptizes him, and it says that when Jesus came up out of the water, the, the sky, the heavens, they, they tore apart. And the Spirit of God descended like a dove, and a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And now take all that you know about Jesus out of your mind. If you were reading that for the first time, you don't know that Jesus was born of a virgin. You don't know that Jesus walked on water. You don't know any of that stuff. All you know, if you, all you were to read, if it was all new to you and you read the Gospel of Mark chapter 1, all you would know from the first mention of Jesus is this guy hadn't done anything, but man, his father really loves him. <clears throat> and that's kind of, you would think that would be the climax of the story, right? That's the kind of thing you would expect at the end of Jesus's life. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased and then the credits roll. But here it is at the beginning of the story. All you know at the beginning of the story is that he has a father who really loves him and the rest of the gospels though record Jesus living into who his father already declared him to be. And so many of us, we live our lives hoping that we can earn those words from our heavenly father. But the truth is, if you are in Christ, those words are already true of you. You are a beloved son or daughter with whom he is well pleased. 
And now the call of the Christian life is not to become a child or a daughter of God. You already are that. But it's to grow up into who you already are. It is to become a mature follower, a mature son or daughter of God. As my kids get older, nothing changes. They were, they've always been my daughter or my son. But as they get older, they begin to experience more of what it means to be my child. And that's what Christian maturity looks like for us. We're always a child of God. He already loves us. But as we mature and as we grow, we begin to understand more and more what he's done for us and what it means to live as a child of God. To forget what lies behind and fix our heart and our mind on that truth and press forward. Paul says in the beginning, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Through his life, his death, and his resurrection, and through faith in him, we have been called children of God. Now we press forward into the inheritance that awaits us. Pray with me.